0: Welcome to the Transformation Church podcast, where we're leading people into a transforming relationship with Jesus. We hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you a fresh perspective on God and His Word, so you can see transformation in your own life. Enjoy the message. If you're a Christian in the room, did you know that you're not the home team anymore? I mean, there was a time where Christians in America were considered the home team where we had influence in the schools, we had influence in the workplace, we had influence in the community, we had influence in the media. There was a time because of that influence where maybe people didn't agree with our positions but they respected us enough to give us a voice. Well, the reality is is that now we're no longer the home team, we're the visiting team. That no longer do we have the influence, no longer do we have a voice that because of our beliefs about life, our beliefs about sexuality, our beliefs about marriage, our beliefs about equality, and so on and so forth, because those beliefs are so different than the culture that we live in today, we've become the visiting team. And so, how did we get there? How did we get to the place where we are no longer the home team that we are now the visiting team? And then now that we're there, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we move forward? Well, that's a tough question that I want to tackle today as we are kicking off our new series called Asking for a Friend, and uh, over the next three weeks, we're going to be tackling three of some of the toughest questions that oftentimes we dodge as followers of Christ. But we're going to tackle them with grace, and we're going to tackle them with truth, and we're going to peel back the curtains a little bit, and we're going to peek into what the Bible has to say about the culture that we're living in today. Hey, if you got your Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter one. We're going to land there today here and just A few moments, but before we do, let's go to the Lord and just ask, um, ask him to bless our time together. Would you say this out loud with me? It's up on the screens. Father, as I open your word today, speak to me, may I have ears to hear a heart to receive and the courage to respond in Jesus name. Amen. So how did we get here? Like, how did we get to the place that we are today? No longer the home team, now the visiting team. You know, maybe you've heard this statement said in the past that history has a tendency to repeat itself. And I think if we want to kind of have a snapshot of what the future of America looks like, then we've got to peek into Israel's past. You see, in the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen people, that he delivered them out of Egypt, he redeemed them, he prepared this amazing future for them in Canaan, but he had one requirement, and that one requirement that God had for his people was that they put him first, that they put him first, And here's what God said is that if you don't put me first, then I will remove my hand off of your life and you will find yourself entering back into captivity again. Well, guess what happened? Israel, specifically the tribe of Judah, as we're looking at in Daniel chapter one today, they quit putting God first. And they got caught up in immorality. They got caught up in idolatry, which idolatry is putting anything on a higher pedestal than God himself. Now, it wasn't something that happened overnight. It wasn't like back then, just one day they're all in for God, putting God first, and then the next day everything changes and God removes his hand. But it was generation after generation what I call a generational drift. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the beach. We love the beach. Have you ever gone into the water and you've gone swimming out and you're out there for 15 or 30 minutes and then you look up at the beach thinking that you're gonna see all your lawn chairs and your little umbrellas and stuff and you realize that you have drifted down the beach? It's happened to me many times. Many times I've ended up a quarter of a mile down the beach not even realizing it. And when you think about it and you think about generational drift, that's what's happened in our lives spiritually and that's what happened with the tribe of Judah. That it was generation after generation that kept playing with the things that God told them to give up. Sounds kind of familiar to what we are experiencing today in America. And so what, ha- what happened in Daniel? Well, God finally got tired of it. He removed his hand and in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered the tribe of Judah. In Daniel chapter one, starting in verse one, we read about this situation of what happened. And it says this, that during the third year of King Jacob's reign, and Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But the Lord gave him victory over King Jocoim and Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects, look at that, some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. And what did he do with them? It says that he took them back to the land of Babylonia and he placed them in the treasure house of his God. In other words, it became a trophy. It says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Verse four says, select only the strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning that they're gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. He said, train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. Why young men? Have you thought about that? Out of all the people that King Nebuchadnezzar could have taken, why young men? Why did he take teenagers? Well, I think it's because, and we'll see this on the screen, that Nebuchadnezzar knew that the transformation of a civilization demanded the indoctrination of the youngest generation. That Nebuchadnezzar knew that the transformation of a civilization demanded the indoctrination of the youngest generation. You see, he knew that if he could get the younger generation to think different, that they would act different. And so what ends up happening in verse 5, it says that the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. They'd get them a government job. In verse six, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names, Daniel, Hananiah, which was Shadrach, Mishael, which was Meshach, and Azariah, which was Abednego. Now, I want to pause right here in our reading Because if history does tend to repeat itself, then how did America get where she is today? How did we get to the place that we are today in a culture, a society, a nation that some of us have a difficult time even recognizing? I wanna unpack that for just a few moments. See in 1930s a social anthropologist from England named J.D. Unwin he wrote a book entitled Sex and Culture Now Unwin studied 80 tribes and six known civilizations over a period of 5000 years and through his study this is what he found out that it took 3 generations to change a civilization Out of all that research over 5,000 years, all the different tribes and civilizations, what he saw as a common thread is that it only took three generations to change a civilization. To the point that the old culture would be totally forgotten and the new culture would take over. Now keep that in mind because for us, Right, we have to stand on two legs in order to be able to stand. Well, if you think about judeo-christian culture or society, there are four legs, four pillars that prop up a judeo civilization. They are faith, family, finances, and freedom. Four legs, four pillars: faith, family, finances, and freedom. And what the enemy does is the enemy comes to attack, right? The enemy does not want a Christian worldview. The enemy does not want a civilization that puts God first. We've seen that from the beginning of time all the way till now. And so what he does is he begins to attack and to chip away at these four pillars, beginning to attack and chip away at faith a a chip away at family of finances and freedom. And so the first one that I want to talk about today, the pillar of faith, if we look in Daniel chapter one, two, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just interested in Judah's land. He was interested in conquering Judah's God. And so how does Satan do that in a Christian nation like America? Well, he does the same thing That's one thing that you learn uh, pretty quickly about Satan is that he's not very creative. (laughs) He tends to use the same things to trip people up generation after generation after generation. Now, what that says about us that keeps falling for it, I don't know, but, but he's done the same thing to our culture, our society that he did even back then that he gets us to stop putting God first. He begins to infiltrate the culture with perversion and with idolatry, creating things in our life that we elevate above God. And what's interesting about what J.D. Unwin said is he had another fascinating discovery that in that research, over 80 tribes, over six Civilizations over 5,000 years, he also discovered this common thread through all of that that every civilization that stopped practicing sexual restraint, okay, every civilization that stopped practicing sexual restraint eventually died. It eventually died. Over 5,000 years, all of these tribes and civilizations, that is one of the common threads that he saw. The more that we became permissive sexually, the more those cultures would implode. Now guess what happened back in the kind of 1930s, 1940s, a guy by the name of William Reich William Reich was a disciple of Sigmund Freud that should probably if you're my age or older than or you did much better than me in history class than you (laughs) then you kind of understand a little bit about that he was a disciple of Sigmund Freud he believed that our identity was directly related to our sexuality This guy was the father of the American sexual revolution that happened in the 60s and the 70s. But he was also a devout Marxist. Now, if you don't know what Marxism is, it's a political philosophy where the government becomes the ultimate provider, the ultimate sustainer, the ultimate protector, the ultimate lawgiver of every citizen. So in effect, what happens is, is the government becomes God. Now watch this. When Reich and others couldn't get Marxism to stick in Germany after World War I, guess what happened? In the late 1930s, they found a home at Columbia University in New York City. And knowing that they had no clout to be able to work their way into the political system of America in the late 1930s, they came up with a brilliant plan. And their plan was to permeate the American educational system with their ideas of Marxism and perversion. Now, what's interesting about Marxism, if you look it up, is that Every civilization that has allowed Marxism to gain a foothold has lost their freedom to worship God. Every civilization that has allowed Marxism to get a foothold has lost their freedom to worship God. See, William Reich also knew that the transformation of a civilization demanded the indoctrination of the youngest generation. And church, this is one of many reasons why there has been such a collapse and the percentage of Americans that have a biblical worldview. What is a biblical worldview? It It is a worldview as how we look at the world around us. And a biblical worldview means that we take scripture and we look at everything in the world, what should happen, what shouldn't happen, the way we should live our lives through the context of scripture, right? And so you can imagine in a Babylonian culture, you could imagine in a culture that wanted nothing to do with God, they want to remove that filter so that we view the world not based off of what the word says, we view the world based off of what we want. And this is why, when you look at the statistics, and these are truth, these are facts, that if you're in the room today and you are 65 years or wiser, that's how I like to put it, not older, but wiser, (laughs) then for you in your generation, you had a 65% biblical worldview. That means when you made decisions, 65% of the Americans within your generation made decisions based upon what the word of God said. Now you step down to my generation from 41 to 56, and look what happened to the percentage, the biblical worldview, it got cut in half. So from that older generation to the next older generation, we went from 65% in America to 33% in America. If you're in the room today and you're 25 years to 40 years old, your generation went from 33% to 19%. And if you're in the room today and you're 10 years old to 24 years old, Your generation looks at the world, looks at your decision-making, looks at everything that it comes into contact with, what it sees on social media and what is allowed and should not be allowed and what is truth and what is untruth. 4% of your generation looks at that through the context of the Word of God. Now, there's a lot of things that we can pull away from that, but I think one thing to me that is an interesting observation is that sometimes we, get, sometimes we get stuck in looking backwards and saying, well, if God would only move like he did before, this would be different. Well, apparently not. Because there's something that's been missing in the American Christian, something that's been missing in the American church generation, generational drift, generation after generation after generation that we would move from 65% to 33% to 19% to 4%. In my view of that, a really good church service that gives us goosebumps is not gonna fix that. Like there's more to it than that. I think as a church, we should look at that and we should, we should see why it's important like what Pastor Mike talked about, about margin and generosity, of why we should be investing in the next generation. Specifically, not just, not that youth ministry and college ministry are important because we're investing in that. But we've... We've in essence now, that younger generation, the 4%, now we've gotta change their mind. Well, as a church, if we wanna to begin to, to bring a turn in the culture and the biblical worldview, then we've got to set our focus on going after the generation younger than that. That we've gotta, what's the statement that we say? We wanna, we wanna, we wanna what? Before we have to rescue them. We want to reach them before we have to rescue them. As I'm 46, and there's a lot of things I would love to do with my finances, but at the end of the day, if I want our country to go back to putting God first, it's not going to happen by me having good church services that fit my needs. It's going to happen by me being generous and investing in the next generation so that as they begin to grow up, we're not having to unlearn things from them, but we are sowing seeds of what their identity is in Christ and their potential and that God has a plan. Like that has to be the focal point for us as a church. The second pillar that Satan ships away at if he wants to get rid of a Judeo-Christian society is the pillar of family. I mean, how do you win a culture war where you do what Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel chapter one, verses three through five? Look at this, he dismantled the family unit. He then isolated the younger generation from their parents. And then he reeducated them according to their beliefs and values. I don't know about you, but that sounds eerily similar to what we're seeing in our society today. Now, I can prove this on many levels, but I'm going to tackle one for time's sake today. And I'm going to tackle the one, listen, that nobody else is talking about. I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk about the one that nobody else, you don't see it in the news, you don't see it in the, in the in, I was going to say newspaper. Do they even do those anymore? Um, <laughs> I'm 46, so there was a newspaper when I was growing up. Look at these stats as it relates to fatherlessness. Remember, stuff nobody else is talking about. One in four children live in a home without a father. One in four children in America live in a home without a father. The USA has the highest rate of single-parent households in the world. And 80% of those single-parent households are led by single mothers. 41% of births today are to unwed mothers. The average, now this convicted me this week. I'm gonna be honest. This convicted me this week. Fathers, listen up. The average school-age boy spends about 30 minutes per week in a one-on-one conversation with his father. To put this into context, the average school-age boy spends 44 hours a week watching TV, playing video games, and scrolling on social media. None of which have a biblical worldview. Fathers, you wondering why like the kids are acting up and being a fool and all that kind of stuff, like are they spending 44 hours a week on all of this stuff that is, is eroding the values that you're trying to build your family upon? 90% of all homeless and runaway children, 63% of teenage suicide, and 85% of behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes kids without fathers in the home are 20 times more likely to end up in prison. Why is nobody talking about fatherlessness in America? Because a Babylonian culture has taken over America. We are no longer the home team, we are the visiting team. And the goal of a Babylonian culture isn't a healthy family it's a government-dependent family. The third pillar that we see Satan chipping away at in America is the pillar of finances. Think of this. Have you ever wondered why millions of people have emigrated to America? Why millions of people have It's because America, although we are not perfect and there's a lot of issues that we need to do better in, but we are the land of opportunity. The people know that if they have a dream and if they work hard, they can come to America and they can reach their dream. Listen, if America was so bad... As many people say, then why why is America four times, as it relates to immigration, four times greater in immigration than Germany, which is the second country, most popular country that people immigrate to? Like if we were so bad, why do so many people want to come to America? And so, how does this Babylonian culture, how does it rob us of our financial freedom? Well, it, we're going to get real. It gets us hooked on free stuff. So we become dependent upon the government. Because remember, the government wants to be our what? Our God. What happened in Daniel chapter one, verse five, the king gave him food gave him schooling, gave him a job. You may think like, what's, what's the big deal about all that? Well, because no government has ever given gifts for the recipient, right? Every government has always given gifts for the giver because they see a value in giving gifts. Why? Because when we become dependent upon the government with our basic needs, we eventually begin to compromise our beliefs and our values in order to keep the free stuff. Now I'm not saying that receiving help from the government is bad. Andrea and I have had seasons in our life where we have have struggled and we've needed help. But what I am trying to make you aware of is that the goal of a Babylonian culture is to get you dependent upon them instead of dependent upon God. And when they do, they know that they have robbed you of your economic freedom. The fourth pillar that we see that Satan chips away at is our freedom. Freedom. What did Nebuchadnezzar do in verses six through seven? He removed their ability to be themselves by doing what? By changing their names. I mean, think about what's been happening in America the last five to 10 years, our ability to to be ourselves is being taken away that, you know, you better watch out what you say, you better watch out what you think, you better watch out what you believe or what's going to happen. You're going to get X'd out. You're going to get canceled. And church, I've got, I've got some bad news as it relates to the culture we live in, that we are no longer the home team. But I want you to hear me. It's not because, attention. it's not because of who is in the White House. It's because of what happened in the church house. Not who's in the White House. There ain't any person in the White House that's going to fix the situation that we're in as a culture. It's what happened in the church house. And here's what I mean by that is that the American Christian looks more like Babylon than it does the Bible. (laughs) You guys are like, why did I come this week? Because generation after generation, we've drifted and become less like the Bible and more like Babylon. We've exchanged courage for compromise. We've exchanged purity for perversion. We've exchanged godliness for greediness. We've exchanged spiritual growth in our life for church services. We've exchanged hunger for complacency. And so if this is where we are and this is how we got here, then what do we do now? That same guy, J.D. Unwin, he wrote this in his book, Sex and Culture. Look with me on the screens. He said, when total sexual liberation is embraced... Society is characterized by people who have little interest in much else other than their own wants and needs. Sound like America? At this level, the culture is usually conquered or taken over either by another culture that has greater social energy. He said that at this level, the culture is usually conquered or taken over by another culture with greater social energy. Church, what if? Like what if another culture was the same American church that chose to repent and to put God first again? to do the hard thing to make our lives look more like the bible than babylon That's what daniel did in verse 8 it says but daniel was determined he was determined in the midst of a babylonian culture determined not to defile himself what was daniel doing he was putting god first in his life daniel was like listen i I can handle, I can be fine with the king's schooling. I can be fine with the king's job. But he knew that the food had been offered to idols and he knew that it would mess him up here in his heart. And so he was respectful. Listen, he was respectful. You don't see Daniel all acting a fool out in this story. He was respectful, but he drew a line in the sand. He drew a line in the sand. He's like, listen, I get that I'm the visiting team, that you're the home team, but if you think that I'm gonna throw my faith away for some food, oh, Nebbie!" you've done lost your loving mind. See, this teenage boy understood this. To obey God, To leave the results up to him. To obey God and leave the results up to him. And so Daniel obeyed, and watch what happens in the next verse. Now, God. Now, God. What happened when Daniel drew the line? Now, God. Had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. Church, look at me. God didn't intervene in Daniel's situation until what? Until he drew the line. Until he drew the line. And the reality is, is that for many of us, we want God to work in our lives, but we're unwilling to draw the line. We question God, like, God, why haven't I gotten the raise yet? And why haven't I found the spouse that I've been looking for? Like, why do I keep having problems at school? And why does my car keep breaking down? Why is the nation the way it is? And I think the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, have we drawn The line. See, God knew that He couldn't trust Daniel with His favor until Daniel was willing to draw the line. Friend, it's impossible to receive God's favor without God's character. It's impossible. And so, what ended up happening, God gave them favor. After eating undefiled food for 10 days, they were healthier than everyone else. They excelled in everything they did to the point that even the king noticed. And watch this if you keep reading the book of Daniel, do you know what you'll see? You'll see Daniel still drawing lines. If you were to read all the way to Daniel chapter 6, you would discover that Daniel's not a teenager anymore. He's in his 80s. King Nebi is dead, and Babylon has been defeated. But my man Daniel, he is just fine. Why? Because he drew a line. How do we keep from losing as a visiting team we have to stop looking like Babylon and start looking like the Bible friend I don't know where you are right now in your journey with the Lord and I don't know what the Holy Spirit has been prompting you either days before now or even in this moment but here's my question to you today we all want God's favor in our life but what line has God been waiting on you to draw? What area in your life has God been telling you, you've got to draw a line and you could say, I could deal with this and I can deal with that, but this stuff right here is going to affect my heart. And so if I want God's favor on my life, I've got to put him first and I've got to draw the line. What line has God been challenging you to draw in your life. Would you bow your head with me today? Father, we come to you today and God, it's a heavy topic and Lord, it could be somewhat of a controversial topic. Father, I believe that the reality is, is that the enemy would want us getting arguing over controversies so that we don't pull back the curtain on his tactics. And so today, Lord, we recognize that we're no longer the home team. Lord, we've dropped the ball in the past and the generations and we've quit putting you first in our life. And we began to seek after success and seek after money and seek after our own wants and our own desires to, to allow ourselves to go down roads of perversion in our life. And Father, today, Lord, we come before you and we repent. As a nation, we repent, Lord, of pointing our fingers outside of this church instead of pointing our fingers at ourselves. Father, forgive us for taking you off of the pedestal in our life. Lord, I pray that God, you would give us the courage to draw the line, the courage, the things in our life that we know are contaminating our spirit, that you would give us the courage to draw the line so that we can have those now God moments in our lives. That Father, your favor would rest upon us in such a way that it even causes unbelievers to notice. Father, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, be sure to share it with your friends and tag us at transformtlh. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to seeing your face in the place someday. Have a great week.